Good morning, Covenant College. It's so good to see you. Welcome back this semester. Uh, Thursday chapels are a rare delight in the life of Covenant, and I always like to think of those who attend the Thursday chapel as the faithful remnant, the, the really, the, really spent the heartbeat of Covenant College. So thank you for being here. Uh, this is uh, the beginning of our annual uh, Res Publica lecture series. Uh, those of you who have been here a while might remember that in the spring we bring in an outside speaker uh, who can engage us on a topic of contemporary concern uh, a couple times, once in chapel, uh, twice in chapel I should say, but we also include within that a one credit class uh, that is taught, uh, in this case tonight, uh, tomorrow night and Saturday morning. Uh, so if you're not aware of that, or if you're just coming to uh, become aware of that, if you're interested, it's actually not too late to register for the class if you wish. Um, see me or, or uh, shoot me an email and we'll be happy to um, set you up. Uh, but this year we are uh, delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Tara Isabella Burton. And she will be uh, engaging us on a, uh, the, the, the title of the, the lecture series is uh, Creation and Self-Creation and Modernity, right? And it is, on, it is based on her book, um, Self-Made. And she's really talking about this concept of what, it, what does it mean to sort of construct or create uh, the self, which is a very modern notion, uh, but maybe not as uh, recently modern as we might think, and that's part of what she's gonna help us understand and see. Dr. Burton uh, is a writer. Uh, she has written two nonfiction books and three novels, most recently, um, Here in Avalon. I knew I was going to, Here in Avalon, it was just published last week, so look for it. Uh, we're very excited to have her. Uh, we're very looking forward to her, uh, her ideas and engaging them together, both here. Again, uh, seek me out if you're interested in signing up for the class. Uh, but please join me in welcoming Dr. Tara Isabella Burton. Right, thank you. Um, can everyone hear me all right? We all set? All right, well, thank you, uh, Jay, uh, and all of you for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. Uh, and talk to you about one of my absolute favorite things, which is can we create ourselves? Should we create ourselves? What does it mean to create ourselves? What does it mean to create? What does it mean to have a self? Uh, all of these questions, I think, are the most interesting questions in the world, or the questions that obsess me as a novelist, as a culture critic. Uh, Self-made was an incredible opportunity to engage with those uh, historically. So um, I think some of you I will meet later tonight and talk with uh, in more detail. Uh, I know uh, I'll see you all again, uh, some of you, all of you again tomorrow at chapel. So these, uh, these two chapel talks are, are meant to be in dialogue with one another. And one is about uh, the dangers of self-creation, and one is about the, the potential, the promise of self-creation. And I went back and forth about which order should I do those in. Uh, but we're going to start, uh, perhaps, uh, with, I won't say the dangers, but the, uh, the pitfalls. So I would like to start uh, this, this lecture by inviting you to consider, consider one particular advertising campaign uh, from January 2020 for the high-end boutique fitness chain Equinox. Um, 
So produced by this marketing studio called Droga5, this campaign uh, entitled Make Yourself a Gift to the World featured a series of images devoted to the ideal gym-goer as a kind of a mythological uh, demigod of self-care. So one of the posters features this powerful woman who's easily lifting up two men like the biblical Samson. Another features a shirtless man lying on a funeral pyre attended by frenetic worshipers. And the purpose of this campaign, according to the marketing firm who gave an interview about it, was to depict, quote, divine characters as godlike God -like gifts to the world in moments and situations that reflect their self-worship as serving a larger purpose to humanity end quote, asking the question, and this too is a quote, does that, that not make self-obsession the most selfless act of all? Or, as one Equinox chief marketer told the journalist, we're targeting individuals dedicated to becoming the very best they can be because, quote, when you become the best version of yourself, you radiate outward and contribute to the, more to the world around you. Now, we should be wary of taking this too literally. Uh, Equinox, a gym whose prices start about $250 a month, is known for kind of actively courting uh, viral controversy with a lot of their advertising campaigns. A couple of years ago, they refused to take new members in January because anyone who went to the gym because it was a New Year's re resolution wasn't serious enough. Uh, they're very good at getting publicity. Um, so we, we, you know, we should be wary about saying that this is in fact uh, indicative of the entire modern predicament. But I think that actually uh, we can learn a lot from this example, uh, including the fact that it's designed for viral controversy. Um, this idea that becoming the best version of yourself through a, a conscious self-cultivation that's both aesthetic and industrious, you're both creating yourself uh, as, a, as a work of beauty, but you're also working hard and kind of cultivating yourself in that way, is, uh, I think, in the contemporary modern cultural imagination, a kind of religious practice. You, you do, in fact, uh, and I think you, you can see this everywhere from uh, subway advertisements to TikTok videos, this idea that what it means to be human, what it means to be the best version of yourself is to decide who you wanna be and go for it, to create yourself as a, as a work of art. And that if you're able to do this, it means that you have gotten in touch with some kind of mysterious or quasi-divine energy. Uh, the language of energy is, is, I think, incredibly common in a lot of this language of self-care and wellness and self-creation, that you can radiate this energy out to the world. Uh, and this, I think, is uh, at the heart of what I call in, in self-made and elsewhere, a kind of metaphysic of modernity, not an official established religion, but a way that um, many of us, most of us, regardless of our religious affiliation, backgrounds and convictions, often get used to talking and thinking just in colloquial speech. We can talk about bad vibes, for example. We can talk about manifesting. Uh, about 50% uh, of Americans now say they believe in manifesting, the idea that if you focus on something uh, that you want, uh, the universe will give it to you. About 20% say they uh, actually practice it uh, in the past year. So these assumptions, these assumptions of how do we make ourselves and should we make, that we should make ourselves are for me deeply bound up 
with a, a particular religious and metaphysical way of looking at the world. The idea, first of all, that out there is some kind of nebulous energy that wants us to be our best selves, where our best selves are often defined by having the lives we would most like, having the bodies we would most like, having the bank accounts that we would most like. Our own uh, internal desires and the structure of reality in this sort of telling mirror one another, that we can actually shape the universe, we can shape reality by making it into the image of what we want. Now, um, this is not just uh, a purely secular view. Um, I think there's versions of it that we can find, for example, in the prosperity gospel, which is very, very common in a, a lot of evangelical circles. But more broadly, um, this is a way of talking and thinking that pretty much everyone with a smartphone, and that's 90% of Americans, by the way, uh, can, it has somehow been exposed to, uh, whether we, we want to, whether we intend to or not. So few people would deny that we live in an age of self-invention and self-curation. And some of this uh, phenomenon is rooted in just the technology we have available to us, the ease of recording and documenting and sharing every aspect of our lives, using these curated profiles to engineer our personal and our professional lives. Uh, indeed, like the vast majority of American couples now meet online, so uh, presenting yourself in personal branding might, for, for many Americans, be how you meet your spouse. Uh, some of it is rooted in uh, sort of economic systems. About 16% of Americans work at least part-time for gig economy services like TaskRabbit, uh, which also require you to kind of build a profile and sell yourself to a, a, potential, uh, to a potential client. A full third of Americans, uh, myself included, are, are, are freelancers uh, in whole and, and in part. So our, often our social media profiles, in my case, uh, Twitter, X, and Instagram are integral to building a brand, getting attention to our work, hopefully uh, getting the attention of people who would want to give us uh, more work. So again, it's a career path that demands constant self-promotion. Um, but I believe, and, and I argue in self-made, that there's, there is this bigger story about at play here, a story that's not just about technology or economics or social change, but about the fundal, fundamental relationship between our and for our, just say, America in 2024, cultural sense of the relationship uh, between human beings and the divine. Now, I know there's that saying that like, when you're, all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, I'm a theologian, so everything looks to me like a theology problem. Um, but I, I think that this is fundamentally, uh, this worldview is downstream of a wider shift in culturally where many of us sort of, where the dominant cultural view of God and our relationship to God has shifted from one in which we are made in the image and likeness of God for a particular purpose that may or may not link up with our individual desires, that who we are is something not that we choose or we decide, but that is sort of given to us or is an interplay of certain kinds of freedom and facticity to one where the, the thing about being human, the thing that makes us us, is our ability to choose, to make ourselves into our own gods. Uh, fun fact, I actually wanted to call the subtitle of Self-Made, How We Became Gods. Uh, my publisher said it wouldn't sell, uh, but uh, for me, the Self-Made is, in fact, a book about 
not just about self-creation, but about self-divinization. The idea that we not only can, but should transcend our humanity uh, in, in service of becoming more powerful and leading the lives that we want. As uh, Stuart Brand, a uh, sort of 1960s era uh, technologist and writer, founder of the Whole Earth Catalog and a sort of infamous self-maker, famously wrote in his manifesto, uh, celebrating the technological changes of the 60s and 70s, we are as gods and we might as well get good at it. And I think whatever uh, you make of that statement, whether you think it's exciting and thrilling and tantalizing or whether you think it's terrifying, it's necessary to read that statement against the background of this wider change. This idea that reality does not come to us from on high or from without or from God, but for more and more people in the dominant culture, from what we make ourselves, from what we want, from what we decide. As uh, the poet and uh, one-time Warhol it girl, Jackie Curtis, wrote in one of her poems, Mom Eternal, it is the work one does himself, my mother told me, and not what is handed to him ready-made that has the constructive power. So what does that actually mean for us today? Uh, for starters, uh, it means that more and more of us, perhaps most of us, have grown up in or spend the vast majority of our, our lives in, uh, whether we're sort of online for fun, for work, for pleasure, in a world where desire does quite literally govern what we see, what we experience, and the reality that is presented to us. And I'm, I'm referring here to uh, our lives online. I mean, I think there's a way that you can think about the internet, I certainly do, as a kind of desire machine. Uh, algorithms take what we like, reflect it back to us, products that we maybe clicked on once follow us around the web. The uh, news headlines that we see are often chosen for us by uh, sort of machine learning and algorithms that take our tendencies and the tendencies of people ostensibly like us or who fit our micro-consumer demographics and feed it back to us. We are uh, more and more of us inculcated into a world where everything about reality changes and shifts in accordance with what we want. Uh, meanwhile, of course, I'm sure uh, many of you are familiar with, uh, and I, I hope uh, insulated from, uh, sort of influencer culture, which is now a $13.8 billion industry. And actually, that was 2021, this number I'm working from. So it's, it's probably, let's say, closer to $15 billion now. 75% of American brands now budget separately for influencer marketing. Uh, about, uh, I want to say, uh, 80% in according to one uh, study of uh, Generation Z would be willing to post sponsored content on their own social media accounts to be at least in part uh, a professional influencer. Uh, and in fact, being a professional influencer is one of the most desired uh, careers among uh, members of Generation Z. So for many of us who kind of live in this world, the, the call to create ourselves uh, both as internet avatars, as personal brands, uh, but also to be in a world where that self-creation isn't just something we have to do sort of for pragmatic reasons, but is part of our sense of what it means to be human, uh, that tendency is, is, only, uh, is only growing. Um, but how did we get here? How did we get to a world where 
Uh, you can have uh, people like uh, George Santos, for example, uh, defend himself by saying, hey, the lies that I, that, I, that I told, were they really lies? I'm a self-made man, it's just what we do. Self-making and a little bit of stretching the truth, making your own reality is, is part of the American tradition. So um, I'm gonna sort of pull us back quite a bit historically and talk about uh, the sort of sense of the world that I see as, as coming before the shift. So for context, in my book, I locate the beginning of the shift first in the, in the uh, Renaissance, particularly the Italian Renaissance, and then later in the European Enlightenment as these sort of two pivotal points. Uh, but what are we talking about when we talk about a world uh, before that, a world where a sense of our social role, our place in it, uh, is, is less about freedom and more about facticity, more about what is given to us? So um, again, any uh, any summation will always be reductionist, uh, and with, but with a caveat, I think that we can speak meaningfully about, let's say, medieval Christendom, the medieval Christian worldview, something you might find, for example, in, in the writings of Thomas Aquinas, as being deeply wedded to the notion that we are, as human beings, uh, not just biologically, but also socially, in some sense, determined. What it means to be created in the image of likeness in God is not just to be created as a human being, but to be created as who we really are, where who we really are means our families, our communities, our uh, clan, and uh, in, for better and for worse, one might say, our, 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 our social station. To be born to be a king, to be born to be a peasant, is somehow part of the, the reality of who we are and not an incidental fact about, about um, ourselves. And sort of within the sort of vision of the natural law tradition, uh, particularly that we find in Aquinas, there is this sense that there is not just, God doesn't just make trees and birds and flowers and rivers. God has also installed governments and principalities, that this is all part of a cohesive whole. Now, that does start to change uh, gradually at first and then uh, rather more uh, rapidly. In first in the Renaissance and then in the Enlightenment, as these sort of questions start to arise about particularly uh, a sort of new class of people, what, you might, what we might call sort of colloquially self-made uh, men, and it was usually at this time men, uh, artisans, merchants, artists, humanists, born in uh, humble beginnings, who by virtue of their talent uh, in an increasingly uh, urban environment, in a sort of increasingly uh, technologically uh, shifting environment, were able to transform their own destinies. And the Renaissance, the, Renaissance, uh, the word for many of these, these individuals, uh, from painters like Leonardo da Vinci to humanist scholars like Poggio Bracciolini, was, was the genius. There was, there was some special being some individual who had the power to shape his own destiny that didn't necessarily threaten uh, the overall social system, the sense of a cohesive unity, because basically they were, they were special. They were the exceptions that proved the rule. They were chosen by God. 
And in fact, in many cases, the language around these figures uh, would take a lot from uh, Greco-Roman notions of the demigod or the idea of a sort of god's bastards, as I refer to them in, in my book, the idea that their legal father might be you know, a, an apothecary or a, an ordinary laborer, but that they are in some sense direct children of God, direct children of fortune. And this rhetorical move is able to say there's a certain kind of special person who is able to make certain decisions about who they are, who is able to transcend the social order. But it's very limited, and it's still uh, based only on something innate, and what, what does God decide? Uh, God decides these are the people who can, and these are the people who can't. Um, this idea of the divine genius, or there being something special, uh, and indeed God-given, or increasingly God-like, about the self-creator is part of the puzzle, and this sort of divinization of the person who is able to take control of their own life is something that historically continues uh, sort of well into the 18th and 19th centuries and beyond. The idea that some people are just more special than others because they're doing the, the work of humanity, the work of, of cultivating themselves uh, more effectively. Uh, this idea uh, often persists rather uh, unchallenged, uh, often with a, with a sort of out, without the accountability uh, for its shadow side, which is to say, what does it mean for those uh, left behind, those who cannot or, or do not uh, engage in this way? But it becomes one piece of this puzzle, the sense that there's some people who are special and some who aren't. Um, in sort of later on in the Enlightenment, and I apologize to the so you are going to hear this uh, in greater detail tonight, uh, there, bec there becomes a greater sense of what I call my book the disenchantment of custom, the sort of reimagining of natural law and its role in our social imaginary as merely a bunch of arbitrary things. You know, we do things like this here, but people in in, whether it's in another country, another part of the world, do things differently there, becomes this rhetorical move uh, used by many Enlightenment authors, uh, from, from Diderot to Montaigne to Voltaire, to say, actually, a lot of the ways that uh, we think of as what we really are, how our society works, are completely arbitrary, and if they're completely arbitrary, they're subject to change. So these two ideas, that there's a sort of specialness, a divine specialness about the self-creator, and also that our social realities, the things that bond us to one another, are only ever arbitrary. They're not the real us, they're not the true us. There's just some stuff that we can take or leave really fused together to be at the heart of this culture of, of self-creation that I see as becoming more and more uh, in, in more and more embedded in what I will call the religion of modernity. And increasingly, uh, especially as we move into the 19th, the 19th century, and particularly for the purposes of today, I'll stick to America, these two ideas start to fuse together in valorization of people, particularly entrepreneurs, who make a bunch of money, who are self-made men in one, in one sense, in the sort of colloquial sense of you know, the Andrew Carnegie's of the world or the Rockefellers or what have you, where to make a bunch of money, to come up from, from nothing and become a, a, a billionaire, a gazillionaire, what have you, is seen as a kind of moral virtue 
but also as a religious spiritual virtue. These are the special people. These are the ones who are able to make these decisions and everyone else gets left behind. This uh, belief, this conviction, takes on a particularly metaphysical and spiritualized cast when it becomes uh, fused with a distinctly American spiritual tradition called New Thought. Uh, just quick show of hands, who here is already familiar with New Thought? Okay, a couple of you. Uh, but uh, so I, I, I like to think that it is the most underrated, uh, important thing uh, in in uh, pr important story in American religious history. So I'm excited to be able to tell you a little bit about it now. So very short version. New Thought comes out of uh, 1860s faith healing. Uh, there's a clockmaker named Phineas Qu Phineas Quimby who doesn't understand why some of the people he tries to faith heal get better and some who don't. Uh, and his conclusion is that some people just don't want to get better that it must be the fault of the patient because it certainly can't be his fault. And this turns into this sort of self-help movement that starts with just health and later moves on into wealth that is a kind of prototype of contemporary ideas like manifesting or the secret. If you just focus hard enough on what you want, if you just uh, meditate upon the perfect body, the perfect bank account, uh, your desire is so strong and powerful that it will connect with the energy out there in the universe in order to make it come true. And this becomes a huge uh, self-help craze uh, in the late 18th century and then especially in the Gilded Age, the early 19th century, sorry, the early 20th century, where dozens and dozens of self-help books uh, claiming to help ordinary people become wealthy just by meditating on it. Uh, you too can have uh, a bazillion dollars if as long as you just try hard enough. Uh, if we lack anything, writes one new thought writer called Charles Fulmore, it is because we have not used our mind in making the right contact with the supermind. For the supermind, read energies, vibe, the universe. Um, now, this, uh, for, for this sort of tendency is one that remained incredibly uh, popular throughout the 20th century. You can find it, for example, in the works of the pastor Norman Vincent Peale, uh, whose best-selling 1952 book, The Power of Positive Thinking, uh, was just one of the most sort of definitive self-help books of the 50s. You can find it, as I said, in like the 2005-era Law of Attraction self-help. You can find it in sort of contemporary sort of TikTok culture. Manifesting is apparently, I'm told, I'm a little old for this, very big on TikTok. Um, and what unites uh, all of these sort of tendencies and trends is this idea that what we really want uh, is the thing that makes us who we really are. That authenticity and artificiality are actually two sides of the same coin. The real us is the us we most want to be. And if we don't uh, somehow fail in, in the exercise of uh, meditating upon the lives that we want and making the universe do what we tell it to do, we have somehow failed at being human. And in the, in the sort of heyday of New Thought, in the Gilded Age, uh, often these writers would very much uh, treat those who did not attain uh, wealth and success and health as failures. This was the time where you know, social Darwinism was becoming very popular as a pop pseudoscience. And uh, many of these writers would basically say, hey, if they're poor, we, should, we don't need social services for the poor. If they're poor, it's just because they didn't want to be rich badly enough. Uh, and you find this in pretty much every New Thought text is this just combination of individualistic hyper-focus on 
individual attainment with a complete willingness to dispense with the poor, the sick, the vulnerable, the old, anyone who does not, does not fit this model of a self-maker, the people who do not get to sort of manifest themselves into traditional forms of success. So this all sounds uh, pretty dire. And uh, it, it is not until tomorrow that I, that I want to talk to you about um, what might be preserved from the self-making tradition, what we might hold on to. So I hope you'll forgive me if this is an unrelentingly negative talk today. Um, but one of the things that I, that I most want to do is invite you to think about this, this question. What actually makes us us? And do we have to get rid of the things we do not choose? in order to be our truest selves? Does being an authentic person mean getting in touch with our desires? Uh, does it mean figuring out who we really are by virtue of what we really want? Or does it mean uh, contending with the fact that there are many elements of our lives, of our selfhood, we do not choose? Uh, we do not have any say over our, our, our families of origin. Uh, the uh, influence that other people have on us are not just uh, families, but even friendships, communities, ways in which other people make us and shape us and help us to determine who we, we really are. And if I do have uh, one big criticism to make about this kind of hyper-individualistic American self-made culture, it is precisely that I think it treats uh, the very things that make us us as merely arbitrarily, merely, merely custom, like, okay, so you know, your, your family did things like this, but you can just walk away from that. You can choose to do something different. And maybe, maybe that is possible. Maybe there are circumstances where that is the right thing. But the idea that that is the normative thing, that cutting ourselves off from our fullest and most embedded social humanity is the only rule, to, way, the only route to, just, to apprehend our most authentic selves is one that I find incredibly troubling. So... I want to leave you uh, with a quote from one of the most uh, famous uh, self-makers of the American tradition, uh, Frederick Douglass. I, I sometimes refer to him as the, the greatest example of American self-making, perhaps certainly the most optimistic. Now, he uh, rather famously wrote an entire lecture called Self-Made Men on the incredible promise of what that might mean for uh, for America, and particularly for, for Americans who, who looked like him. Frederick Douglass was born into chattel slavery and still had a conviction that there was some freedom in the American dream, in the American promise, for people, regardless of their background, regardless of their circumstances, to um, achieve a life of dignity and worth and meaning. And yet, even in that uh, lecture, Frederick Douglass gives us a warning. Properly understood, he says, there are in the world no such men as self-made men. That term implies an individual independence of the past and present, which can never exist. In other words, we all help to create one another. 
And I think that it becomes easy when we, are, when we talk about um, this question of desire and freedom and facticity and what we choose and what we do not choose to uh, come down too easily on, on one side uh, or the other of the, of the debate and say, you know, it's only the things that don't, we don't choose that make us who we really are, or it is the things that we do choose that make us who we really are. Um, but I, I like to think that, um, in fact, it is precisely that, that tension, that uneasiness between the fact that we are beings who tell stories and beings who want to create ourselves and beings who want to shape ourselves and beings who are not reducible to the biographical facts of our birth, that we cannot be exchanged with someone uh, you know, who had some identical facts about us on paper, that that is something worth preserving too. And that the tension between freedom and facticity, between the fact that we are ensouled beings in the image and likeness of God and also mortal animals who all will die, uh, is at the heart of what it means to be human, even as I worry that in this contemporary era of valorization of freedom and, and self-determination, we might have lost sight of that. Uh, somewhere around, uh, sometime around 1600, uh, Shakespeare Hamlet's, uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet already knew this, already wrestled with this. He wonders, what a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in action like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, and yet, at the same time, nothing but a quintessence of dust. So more than 400 years later, and over the next three days, I hope to wrestle uh, with some of you uh, in class and some of you in conversation about that tension. What does it really mean? How do we, can we get past that contradiction? Or is that contradiction just as the core of who we are? Now, um, with the last couple uh, minutes we have available to us, I know it's traditional to end with uh, sort of a call to, to, to prayer and reflection. And I uh, would invite all of you, if you uh, would like, to take a moment and reflect on those people in your life who have made you who you are, who have shaped you uh, in ways that you have not chosen, and encourage you to, uh, if you so wish, to, to pray for them uh, and uh, to sort of think about their role in making you who you are today. So I'll invite you all to do that. Uh, and thank you all so much for your time. Amen. Thank you all so much.